Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The U.S. may publish evidence of China planning to send weapons to Russia. And NATO also sounding the alarm that Beijing could be planning to violate international law. How the White House responds. Vivek Ramaswamy, the newest Republican contender in the presidential race. What's his stance on China? And what does he have to say about former President Trump? Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg today visits East Palestine for the first time since the derailment. What he says about his absence and the plan going forward. World Health Organization member states drawing closer to finalizing a pandemic policy accord. What the plan lays out and a deeper look at how it could all play out. And former President Trump and his lawyers react to the election probe in Fulton County, Georgia. The foreperson of the special grand jury recently made public what happened in the jury room. The U.S. has publicly warned China against sending weapons to Russia, and the administration is now reportedly going to publish evidence of China considering just that. NTD's Iris Tao has the latest from the White House. U.S. officials telling the Wall Street Journal that a Biden administration could release intelligence that China is now considering sending weapons to Russia. The discussions on public disclosure, the report says, comes ahead of the war's one-year anniversary on Friday. And it follows a number of closed-door appeals to Beijing, which culminated in a formal warning by the Secretary of State this past weekend. China is considering uh, uh, supporting Russia's war effort in Ukraine with lethal assistance. And now NATO is also sounding the alarm, saying on Thursday... We haven't seen uh, any uh, supplies of uh, lethal aid from China to Russia, uh, but we have seen signs that they are considering uh, and maybe planning for that. But the White House is not telling us when it's going to publish evidence of China considering that, or if the administration has any at all. But they haven't said it's off the table. Uh, but again, we haven't seen it happen at this time. We, ha we haven't seen them provide the support. Uh, but again, uh, you know, we're going to continue monitoring this and, uh, and, you know, and speak out when needed. Meanwhile, Biden's meeting virtually with G7 leaders and Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky on Friday. The White House says it will announce new sanctions against those aiding Russia's war effort. But the press secretary still wouldn't name China on Thursday as a potential target. Does that include China, Chinese companies? I'm just not going to get ahead of any announcement that's going to happen tomorrow. That said, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen went public on Thursday with her warning to China. We have made clear that providing material support to Russia would be a very serious concern to us. The potential sanctions come after Russian President Vladimir Putin hosted a top Beijing diplomat at the Kremlin on Thursday. And as he confirmed, the Chinese Communist leader Xi Jinping would visit Moscow in the coming months. Reporting from the White House, Aris Tao, NTD News. And with China showing signs of supporting Russia's war efforts, some say this partnership could be a force to be reckoned with. But a China expert says, ultimately, the U.S. should be preparing for war with China. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. Fundamentally, the U.S. government and the American people and their allies have to see China as an enemy, an enemy that it truly is, and act accordingly. China expert Bradley Thayer told NTD China may have more up its sleeves than the U.S. is ready for. 
and the military needs to get ready. So we need to be realistic about this and to recognize that, well, we built a lot of, we acquired a lot of capital during the Cold War, and we've drawn on it heavily since the end of the Cold War, uh, but the bank is empty. Right? We no longer have any money. We need to be able to make ships, submarines, aircraft, for example. We need to prepare for war with China uh, in the near term and be prepared for that. China has gotten much more powerful and is much more aggressive. Uh, it's going to use its power to bring about the changes that it seeks in international politics. And those are uh, to the detriment of U.S. national security interests. He said the U.S. national security community should make decisions based on the assumption that China is a threat. That is, does any action in international politics help or hurt China? And if it helps China, it should not support it. If it hurts China, it should support it. It's fundamentally a zero-sum game of, of relative power considerations uh, that the United States has to perceive its relationship with China. Not to say that it does, certainly, but it should do so. Why is China America's number one threat? Certainly. Uh, uh, China is an existential threat to the United States, uh, to um, the liberal order that the United States created uh, in the Cold War, because the leader of China is an aggressive and risk-accepting individual. Uh, so here we have an individual who's determined to bring about fundamental changes in international politics and to do so rapidly. So that's very dangerous. Secondly, China is an existential threat because of the ideology of the Chinese Communist Party. The Chinese Communist Party de facto right, uh, states that it is communism is a superior ideology to liberalism, uh, to the liberal order that the United States created and has sustained. Thirdly, China is an existential threat because they've got power, that is material power, military power, diplomatic power, technology, etc. cetera, uh, then what it did wouldn't matter. Uh, but because China does have substantial and considerable power, it's able to remake international politics. Thayer predicts it would take years for the U.S. to build a military force and infrastructure that could beat China. Arlene Richards, NTD News. And the newest Republican presidential candidate is calling for a harsher stance on China. Biotech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, who declared his candidacy on Tuesday, posted this on Twitter. I'm calling for a declaration of independence from China. Total decoupling. Xi Jinping's shot China's economy last year as part of his egomaniacal quest for a third term. This gives us a window to hit them hard economically while it hurts. As president, I will take that opportunity. And Ramaswamy is officially on the campaign trail. His first stop was in New Hampshire last night, where he answered several questions from the audience. NTD's Jason Perry was there. I'm here with brand new uh, Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy. Um, one of the questions I have for you is you were explaining kind of the reason you were running is to get the American identity out. And in the in the, the conversation, um, can you please explain um, what this means and why it's important? So we're in the middle of this national identity crisis where people cannot even answer the question of what it means to be an American today. I'm all for putting America first. I'm an America first conservative. But to put America first, we need to rediscover what America is. 
Okay, and that's what I'm on a mission to do, to revive the basic ideals that set this nation into motion. From free speech, to meritocracy, to the unapologetic pursuit of excellence, to democratic self-governance over aristocracy. That's what it means to be American. And if we revive those basic ideals, then we can actually take on the external challenges we face, such as the Communist Party of China. What can people who may not know your policies, what can they look forward to during your campaign trail? I think they can look forward to substance. These are not somebody else's ideas that I read up in a binder and that I'm spewing talking points that I memorized. This is a national vision that I have personally developed. Take the kid gloves off, say the unspeakable that needs to be said out loud, ending affirmative action, abandoning climate religion, pledging against the use of central bank digital currencies, shutting down government agencies. I challenge any other Republican candidate to talk about those issues as openly. I hope they do, but what candidates can expect from me on the campaign trail is that's exactly what you're going to get. Ramaswamy said he probably wouldn't have even thought about running if he wasn't following former President Trump's example as a, quote, outside disruptor. And he explained a bigger picture that he sees in America. The dividing line is not between Republicans and Democrats even anymore. It is between pro-American and anti-American. And when you draw it that way, it's at least 70-30, if not better, in our favor. And that is why I am running for president to revive those ideals so we have one nation left at the end of it rather than otherwise where this is going in the direction of a national divorce. That is the whole premise of my campaign. He joins the 2024 presidential race with Trump and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. Jason Perry, NCD News. Today, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg visited the site of the Ohio train derailment for the first time. That's nearly three weeks after the crash. And the National Transportation Security Board released its first findings on the derailment this morning. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg today praising residents of East Palestine for their resiliency. Some of the locals have complained about experiencing nausea, vomiting, rashes, and burning sensations. That's after the local government opted for a controlled burn of chemicals that spilled during the train derailment. Buttigieg today proposing a plan to prevent accidents like this one from happening in the future. The plan would involve the implementation of new inspection technologies, among other precautions, and safer tank cars. When you see the twisted metal there, you realize the difference between a fortified tank car and some of the tank cars that don't have that level of fortification. Buttigieg did not publicly address the incident until 10 days after the fact. He was asked whether he could have weighed in sooner. The answer to your question is yes. I felt strongly about this and uh, could have expressed that sooner. Again, I was taking pains to respect the, the role that I have and the role that I don't have, but that should not have stopped me from weighing in about how I felt about what was happening to this community. Earlier today, the National Transportation Security Board issued an initial report on the derailment. The report suggesting that blame for the accident lies in a wheel bearing that severely overheated before the train went off the rails. It was the combination of the hot axle and the plastic pellets which started the initial fire. The crew operating the freight train apparently didn't receive a critical warning about the overheated axle until moments before the derailment. The report is preliminary and subject to change as investigators deepen their probe. 
At a White House briefing earlier today, the press secretary defended President Biden against critics who point out that Biden went to Ukraine and other European countries, but not yet East Palestine. The press secretary says Biden took action by coordinating various agencies who did respond to East Palestine. While he was in Poland, he spoke to uh, the important folks on the ground, the leaders, the leadership on the ground, including uh, his leadership in those uh, in those uh, respective agencies. She added that the federal government will hold Norfolk Southern accountable for the derailment. And at the press conference, the chair of the National Transportation Security Board said the incident was, quote, 100 percent preventable. She also vowed to make sure this never happens again. And we look ahead now to a meeting of member states of the World Health Organization next week. They'll be working towards signing off on a new agreement on pandemic policies. It aims to set in place measures that would increase efficiency, coordination and equality in the global response to future pandemics. But critics worry it could come at the cost of freedoms and other rights laid out by law in otherwise sovereign states. Some Republican lawmakers are among those critics. They say the WHO's response to the COVID pandemic doesn't bode well for future pandemic response planning. Following this story is Epic Times business reporter Kevin Stockland. And I spoke with him earlier today. Kevin Stockland, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. Now, WHO member states will be negotiating the final terms of an accord next week that would give the organization centralized authority over America's policies in the case of a pandemic. You've raised some concerns about this in an article you wrote for the Epic Times. Could you tell me more about that? Yeah, so the whole purpose of this agreement, uh, according to the preamble, is uh, because they uh, had a catastrophic failure during the COVID pandemic. And that catastrophic failure was not in terms of locking people down or forcing vaccines on them or closing schools. It was a failure of solidarity and equity. And so that's the whole purpose of this agreement. And what it wants to do is centralize authority uh, in, in the WHO to declare a pandemic. And once that pandemic is declared to uh, be in control of things like supply chains, um, information, treatments, medicines, things like this. And the accord talks about a concept of one health surveillance, but its definition is unclear. Do you think that this could pave the way for inappropriate surveillance or control? Yeah, well, they left the actual definition blank, but one health is this is this very uh, is this concept that uh, the whose jurisdiction should not just be about viruses and pandemics, that health includes things like climate, it includes things like food, it includes things like racism. And so it broadens the, the jurisdiction of, of what, what health means as far as the who. Now, as far as what, what surveillance entails, you know, th that is going to be hopefully worked out next week. But we're seeing things like vaccine passports that were, were just approved by the G20. And then they also have this concept of what they call social listening that they want all of the member countries to engage in to monitor their populations and be sure that uh, no one is pushing what they consider disinformation. We've seen that medical opinion can vary widely, especially regarding new illnesses. Could we see even more rigorous suppression of divergent viewpoints, do you think, and the criminalization of novel treatments? We absolutely could. I mean, the official narrative has, has been all over the place during COVID. I mean, first, we weren't supposed to wear masks, then we were. Um, you know, there's a movement in California, a law that I think has just been struck down by the courts to, um, to monitor what doctors are able to say to their patients and what they're able to prescribe. Um, so, you know, all of this 
would now come under the auspices of this agreement. And Republican senators are pushing back against this accord, introducing a bill last week that would treat the accord like a treaty, which requires a Senate supermajority to pass. How likely is it that this bill will become law? Um, I, I would not say hugely likely, and there's two things to consider with this agreement. So the agreement uh, in and of itself was specifically drafted to go into effect without Senate approval. So it says as soon as this agreement is signed by Biden or whoever represents the members, it goes into effect even before any parliament or any Congress approves it. Now, the other question is, well, does this become the law of the land in the United States within our borders? Uh, treaties do require Senate approval. But uh, today, over the past 50 years, what's called executive agreements that can be signed by the president without Senate approval, um, they are now 90% of the international agreements that are signed, not treaties. They do not have Senate approval. You could include things like the Paris Climate Accord uh, and the Iran nuclear uh, deal. So these were not signed off by the Senate. So if this agreement goes that route, it may not need Senate approval. And, and that's what the Senate is trying to do, to basically pass a law that says this has to be considered a treaty. You have to come and get our consent. What do you think the American government should do to position itself to govern with sovereignty during any future pandemics? Uh, well, one thing would be uh, to look at this agreement very closely and, and look at it in the context of our sovereignty and our Constitution. Um, there are some that advocate going even, even farther. There's uh, been a bill introduced in the House uh, in May and reintroduced just last week to uh, pull us out of the WHO, to take uh, the United States out of membership in the WHO and to defund the organization. Uh, President Trump had done that. Uh, we were Our membership was reinstated by President Biden. So those are all options that we can look at. What can individuals do to protect their own inherent rights in the case of another global health emergency? Yeah, so this is the thing. Uh, you don't, people don't have a voice in this. They don't have a vote in this. There's nothing in this accord that says, um, you know, that people should have individual rights. Also, that they should have a right to refuse treatments or a right to refuse vaccines or be in charge of their own their own healthcare decisions. So this accord is very much about centralizing power with so-called experts and taking power away from individuals. And, and I feel that if we move forward with it uh, and sign it. Um, this is a step away from personal sovereignty and civil rights as we understand them. All right. Kevin Stockland, reporter for the Epic Times, thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. And we have more updates on former President Trump and the election investigation in Fulton County, Georgia. Trump's lawyers are criticizing the probe's proceedings after the foreperson of the special grand jury went public this week. I can tell you I heard other phone calls. The four-person of the special grand jury in Georgia, Emily Kors, spoke out to media outlets this week about what happened behind the closed doors of the jury room. This includes how some witnesses behaved, how prosecutors interacted with witnesses, and how some witnesses invoked their rights not to answer certain questions. Former President Trump's attorneys Drew Findling and Jennifer Little suggested the grand jury did not operate in a professional manner. Findling told the Associated Press, the end product is the reliability of anything that has taken place in there is completely tainted and called into question. He also said to the Atlanta Journal Constitution, this type of carnival, clown-like atmosphere that was portrayed over the course of the last 36 hours takes away from the complete sanctity and the integrity, and for that matter, the reliability. Trump also commented on the case on Truth Social, writing in part, This Georgia case is ridiculous, a strictly political continuation of the greatest witch hunt of all time. This is not justice. This is an illegal kangaroo court. 
Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis impaneled the special grand jury. She is investigating Trump's alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election results in Georgia. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. And House Speaker Kevin McCarthy defends giving Fox's Tucker Carlson footage from the January 6th Capitol breach. McCarthy tells the New York Times that he promised to release the tapes because, he says, they do belong to the American public. McCarthy has released 40,000-plus hours of footage to Carlson, meaning the show host now has access to more materials than the House panel did during the investigation last Congress. Carlson's team is reviewing the footage, which could air in the coming weeks. The release from Speaker McCarthy comes after calls for transparency from members, including Congressman Matt Gates. When asked about his plans to release the footage last month, here's what McCarthy told reporters. I think the American public should actually see all what happened instead of a report that's written for a political basis. Democrats, however, condemning this act as a breach of security. Senate Leader Chuck Schumer writing a dear colleague letter saying the speaker is needlessly exposing the Capitol complex to one of the worst security risks since 9-11. Democrats also accusing McCarthy of handpicking Fox, saying that shows political bias. However, Republicans say last Congress's investigation was biased in and of itself since only two Republicans sat on the select committee, both of whom held bias toward former President Trump. This comes as the DOJ's special counsel had subpoenaed former President Trump's daughter Ivanka and son-in-law Jared Kushner. The two will have to testify before a federal grand jury about Trump's connection with January 6th. If you have any news tips or feedback for our show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, a sweeping snowstorm is hitting parts of the U.S. Even places where it's normally warmer, like Los Angeles, are seeing some rare weather phenomena. And in the NFL, a former player breaks his silence after rescuing his kids last month. They were drowning in the ocean. NTD's Dave Martin has that story. That and more coming up. massive winter storm kept its grip on the northern plains and upper Midwest on Thursday. California also saw a separate storm spawned unusual weather. NTD's Bill Thomas has more. Southern California is known for sunshine, blue skies and warm beaches, but that all changed on Thursday as a winter storm swept through the area, leaving behind high winds and winter storm warnings. According to the National Weather Service, the greater Los Angeles region saw an average of one to four inches of snow in and near mountain areas. As of Wednesday afternoon, higher elevations reported six to 12 inches of snow. Similarly, in Northern California, San Franciscans reported rare winter flurries as high elevations saw blizzard conditions. Snow is expected to blanket mountains in the Bay Area and the Los Angeles region. By Saturday, up to eight feet of snow could accumulate on Mount Baldy, located northeast of Los Angeles. Icy conditions caused a 20-car collision in Yucaipa in San Bernardino County and sent eight people to the hospital. The snow comes as freezing rains and gusty winds swept through the central U.S. The blistering conditions left hundreds of thousands without power and grounded hundreds of flights. 
Transportation departments across the northern United States reported closed roads and slick pavements due to ice and snow accumulation. Officials warn motorists to slow down when driving on icy roads. Bill Thomas, NTD News, Los Angeles. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Thank you, Steph. Former NFL running back Peyton Hillis broke his media silence today, saying he should make a full recovery after saving his kids from drowning off a of Florida beach last month. Hillis, who played seven seasons in the NFL, released a statement on Twitter thanking those who aided in his recovery and explained his silence, saying, quote, I haven't taken any interviews on this because I'd like to keep my family out of the public eye. This was a very traumatic time for us. The 37-year-old was reportedly on a ventilator before being released from the hospital roughly two weeks after the accident. Hillis was a seventh-round pick of the Denver Broncos back in 2008 and played for four different teams during his career. A bruising running back listed at 240 pounds, Hillis's best season was in 2010 when he ran for nearly 1,200 yards while a member of the Cleveland Browns. And in golf news, the PGA of America announced they will allow Live Golf members to compete in the PGA Championship, meaning now all four majors, which also includes the Masters, the US Open, and the British Open, will allow golfers from the Upstart League to compete. The four majors are run separately and each are independent of the PGA Tour. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, the NBA is finally back from their all-star break with nine games on the schedule featuring a star-studded matchup between LeBron James and the LA Lakers who host the defending champion Golden State Warriors. Now both teams have stars, yet both need a win just to boost their playoff chances. And in the college game, four ranked teams are in action featuring a rivalry game in the Big Ten as 21st ranked Northwestern plays at Illinois. And finally, for you hockey fans, the NHL has 10 games on tap, including the Washington Capitals and winger Alex Ovechkin, who's back after taking time off after his father's death. They host the Anaheim Ducks. And that's it for your sports news today. Steph, all yours. Thanks, Dave. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.